Welcome to On Cities with host Carrie Pennebod. Over the next hour, you'll learn from Carrie and her guests how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Now, here is Carrie. Welcome to On Cities. My name is Carrie Pennebad, and this show is dedicated to the design of our cities. Cities are amongst the greatest of human endeavors. They are the backdrop for our daily lives and the legacy that we leave for future generations to inhabit. I've come to understand that the quality of our daily lives, our health, the health of our planet, our sense of connection, and even our happiness is directly influenced by the design of our built environment. And yet we seldom discuss what makes great cities and how we can work together to design a better world. For this reason, I have invited leading creative professionals from a variety of fields to share their work and their thoughts on the city. And through these conversations, I hope to engage some of the greatest challenges and opportunities facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, architecture and the arts, embedded technologies, and much, much more. Today, I am delighted to introduce my next guest, Rodolphe El Khoury. Rodolphe is the Dean of the University of Miami School of Architecture. He was trained as both a historian and a designer, and he divides his time between scholarship, research, and practice. He is the author of numerous books on architecture and urbanism, including See Through Ledoux, Architecture, Theater, and the Pursuit of Transparency, Monolithic Architecture with Rodolfo Machado, Figures, Essays on Contemporary Architecture, and Shaping the City, Studies in History, Theory, and Urban Design, which he edited with Edward Robbins and which is now in its second edition. He leads the Rad Lab, which is a research lab for the embedded technology and robotics aiming at enhancing responsiveness and resilience in buildings and smart cities. The work of his firm, Curry Levitt Fong, has won international awards. El Curry's work has been featured in national and international media outlets that cut across disciplines ranging from Wired Magazine to the Wall Street Journal and from the Space Channel to BBC World. He has shared his work through teaching, visiting professorships, and lectures at dozens of institutions in the United States and abroad. Rodolphe, thank you so much for taking time from your busy schedule to join On Cities today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. So, Rodolphe, in preparing for this conversation, I learned about a funny story that influenced how you became interested in architecture. Can you share this with our listeners? Oh, yes, there is a story, but it's not going to be uh, one of those inspirational moments where you see the light, the epiphany. No. So let me explain. When I was born, you know, in a family where, you know, parents, siblings are, you know, brownish with very dark features, I was almost bl a blonde. Well, I have to say that in the Middle East, light brown qualifies as blonde. Anyway, so as a joke, a friend of the family who worked for the daily newspaper announced my birth and said that I was named Rodolphe. You know, it's like a German, French sounding name, very foreign for sure. So the he was making a joke, but my parents, you know, liked the name. They kept it. So I grew up with this strange name. Nobody around me had that name, except there was a quite you know, known, very established, almost like a public figure, an architect was that name in Beirut. So that was the only reference. In my world, Rodolphe was the architect, <laughs> nobody else. So grew up with, you know, the architect, my parents joking about the future architect. So I and stuck. In short, I was brainwashed. <laughs> <laughs> this is where like the name decides the destiny. Yes. So uh, uh, this is a teachable moment for all parents. We have to be very careful in your selection of names. I recommend the most generic ones. <laughs> so it's the most open-ended, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> well, 
um, you have a, a, a varied background. You have a bachelor's of architecture from the Rhode Island School of Design, and you have a history um, background where you have a master's in history from MIT and a PhD from Princeton. Um, but recently, most of your work has been focused on technology. So can you talk to us about this trajectory? Right. I mean, it may seem a bit chaotic, uh, but actually there is a very clear line. So let me explain. Well, the first shift from professional architectural training to history actually was not unusual when I was in, uh, when I graduated from the Rhode Island School of Design. So it's during a recession. It was a moment when actually it was a self-reflexive moment in architecture because, you know, we had a lot of time to think. So we were interested in the history and theory of the discipline. And many of my classmates ended up actually in, in those uh, programs that explored the, the, the discipline. Many of them actually are deans now also. <laughs> so the, the second shift is uh, there's a more explanation. So my dissertation at Princeton was on the history of the senses, specifically in 18th century France and how it relates to architecture. But so the, the history of the senses, meaning the sense, senses and sensation, considered not only as a physiological mechanism, but also as, as a, also as a cultural construct. So it's about how the cultural and historical con context actually shape and inflect uh, sensation. So I'll give you an example. For instance, in the 18th century in Paris, suddenly everybody was uh, complaining about smell. Like it was, it became intolerable. Everybody was talking about it. It's not like, you know, the there was a de demographic explosion and the city became crowded and more uh, uh, smellier, let's put it this way. It's not that there were new industries, et cetera, that actually exacerbated that. No, what happened is that suddenly the people became less tolerant of the smell of the city. The city had not changed. The smell wasn't worse. The people, the way they perceived the, the, the smell of the city was different. So this is the kind of problem that I was interested in. Another important part of the construction of sensation is how the role of technology, and that was very important for me. So, for instance, you see how progressively vision came to dominate, and it's because actually the, some technologies were developed actually to make it more dominant, to in, to empower it. So, in the Previous two centuries, this has been building up you know, from the telescope, the microscope, and other technologies that actually made vision dominate to this day. Actually, we are still in the visual paradigm, so to speak. So from those studies, I got interested in the, the, the technology of the senses and sensation, the cultural underpinnings of sensation. And I was interested in building these multi-sensory immersive environments to explore the, the role of the sensation. This is how I got a Canada Research Chair in uh, the University of Toronto, was funding specifically, you know, uh, 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 provided to explore those uh, environments. So, uh, and these were, for instance, uh, what some of these projects actually were very interested in actually making more tangible, uh, available to the senses, things that happen online, you know, that things that are in the infosphere. So a lot of projects, for instance, uh, uh, brought some of this activity and visualized it, made it tangible in public spaces. So one of them, which was actually developed for Louis Blanche, this is a event where at night all the galleries are open uh, and the people are walking around. So we took a storefront and with rear projection, uh, 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 provided an image of the people who were looking at the storefront. Of their, It's like their portrait taken in real time from a webcam, but the pixel were constituted of all the other photos that are being uploaded to social media about the event itself. 
So the portrait of anyone looking at this installation was constituted of this intense activity on the in social media that is not really available uh, as a, as something that animates the city. So mm. it's all happening in that uh, uh, on the web, and now it becomes tangible. So these are the kinds of projects that uh, went from history, the study of the census, and then to an investment in the public life of the city and how to make manifest this activity online. Yeah, as I hear you describe what you're talking about, I'm seeing a more direct connection between these kind of historical examples and your interest in, let's say, immersive environments, you know, and Mm -hmm. how oftentimes we do give priority to the visual, but in fact, the sense of spell is one of the most powerful senses, and it's often overlooked. So, you know, when, when I read in the description of Rad Lab that it's a research unit that is dedicated to embedded technology and the Internet of Things. And for those who are listening, the Rad Lab is a research unit that you brought from the University of Toronto and you now lead as part of the University of Miami School of Architecture. When I read this description, I imagine an engineering background and not necessarily this scholarly work on history of the senses in, <clears throat> in 18th century France that you're describing now. But in listening to you, I better understand that trajectory. But has anything from your historical work persisted in your new technology-driven projects? Right. Yes, totally. Those early projects from uh, Toronto were very much interested in communicating a cultural uh, message, a story, a narrative by means of the uh uh, ambient uh, technology by means of atmosphere. By the way, this parallel, this is not only unique to my project, this was a moment in architecture where there was a lot of interested, interest in the, the architecture as an atmosphere that was likened to like the soundtrack in a motion picture. So, so for instance, let me give you a, an example uh, from that period uh, a, a small park or a large garden was commissioned uh, from the city of Xi'an. So uh, there was this, we, the, the garden featured an array of light poles, basically lighting fixtures, which were like poles, but these were also scent diffusers, computer controlled scent diffusers that actually overlaid an olfactory narrative landscape, which we explored with the collaboration of a scent artist from who's based in Berlin, Cecil Tolas. So uh, kind of a, a message or narrative about the history and the geography of China was overlaid on, onto the landscape by means of this uh, 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 computer-controlled apparatus. So that gives you an example of how there's always a uh, a, a preoccupation with signification and narrative uh, always built into the deployment of technology and atmosphere. So, uh, by the way, you mentioned smell, and I immediately went to an example about smell, but it's actually an obsession. Like, I'm, I'm really interested in smell. Actually, the whole lab is invested also in smell because we think it's, it's the new frontier in design. You know, we know how to control acoustical environment. Of course, the visual, that's really the, yes, the resistance of architecture. But I think now is the time to start to explore the smell. And we haven't because we didn't have the technology to control it precisely. So, you know, the cliches about smell is evanescent, ineffable. It really, it's, we think about it in th- those terms because we cannot control it because we cannot reproduce it because we cannot record it so so there are we are interested now in how technology gets us a bit closer to the deployment deployment of smell as a design project right as a material that can be uh, manipulated and and shaped by designers so one of the the project i want to mention i hope i'm not actually <laughs> Uh, moving too far from the topic is because I love this project. It's like it's it's, a, it's called scent design synthesizer. Basically, it's like a 
instrument that allows you to perform olfactory concoctions, like uh, compositions. It has these tubes that you can actually pull, like an organ stops. You can control the time. A combination of uh, 64 different kind of smell to constitute uh, uh, an olfactory experience. Uh, mm. And you can do it uh, manually because it's like it's conceived as a tangible interface, but also you can control it on your computer screen by drawing the curve that uh, defines how each each diffuser actually releases its scent over a 24-hour period. So it's a fascinating project, which attempts what we do with the sound and vision is actually to control and create, to shape, to sculpt the olfactory dimension of a space by means of an instrument. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when I hear you talk about this, I'm... I recall this book that I read years ago by um, Diana Ackerman. It's called The History of the Senses. And if you think about certain periods in history, like I, I remember one that stays with me is, let's say, papal Rome during the 1600s. You know, the papacy would build the villas on the outskirts of the city where they would bring, you know, visitors. And they were very careful um, in hiring, obviously, the most talented architects of the day. But those architects would sculpt those villas, not only to be, of course, visually stunning, but they always incorporated the other senses. So sound through the use of like falling water and grottos. And I remember that many of the villas also had orangeries, so orange groves. So as you came into the spaces, you were sort of overwhelmed by that scent. And so I think that maybe these new technological devices that you're talking about can basically make us maybe more aware or more in tune as designers that really, you know, we should, we have the power to create environments that can ignite all the senses, you know, and in in doing so, they provide for more memorable experiences of space. So I think, I think that's really fascinating, actually. Um, well, I mean, I think that you know, we've talked, we've touched upon um, the notion of immersive environments um, and some of the work um, I think that you are doing at the Rad Lab will continue to speak about in the conversation. But in addition to the work at the Rad Lab, um, at UM, you're also leading the Climate Resiliency Academy, um, which is basically a new unit that you helped to create to address climate change impacts. Um, and at the School of Architecture, you've promoted a resilience-focused agenda for the school. So now I'm curious whether this urgency of environmental problems displaces any of these former interests, or maybe I should say these parallel interests in aesthetics and culture. Right. That's a, a great question, because, yes, when you look at our work now, ostensibly, it is very much focused on problem solving. You know, it's uh, decarbonization, it's uh, more efficient use of energy. It's really we are dealing with serious problems, uh, like you said, because there is a sense of urgency. But I have to say that the, you cannot completely explain those projects by that, you know, urgent uh, dedication to the environment. There's always a residual aesthetic project. There is a rhetorical flourish, so to speak, that actually aligns them still with that, uh, uh, the cultural project of the early experiments that I uh, described earlier. So uh, for instance, let, let me give you some examples. We have another, you know, one preoccupation, or more like an obsession, is smell. Another one is to try to integrate living material into buildings. So, I mean, this is not so unusual. We, you are familiar, of course, with the living walls, plant material integrated into structures, etc. So, but uh, our twist on this here is to occupy the ceiling. We think the ceiling is. Uh, un, you know, exploited uh, uh, real estate. We know what to do with the walls and the floor, but I think the, the ceilings have great potential. So there are many projects at Red which populate the the ceiling with uh, plant material, for instance. We have developed like a acoustical tile that has moss. We have 
based on research done by NASA, we know what plants actually perform very well when they are hanging upside down. Anyway, there are a whole set of uh, there are many, many projects which explore this uh, this potential. And always what we what is driving this is this demonstrated uh, function of plants in de detoxifying the atmosphere. And this is also a NASA-based uh, uh, research that we have uh, based our broad, uh, work on. But of yes, th so there is a, a preoccupation with the quality of the air and health and well-being. But clearly, what's also driving this is that, of course, the spectacle of a hanging garden, you know, upside down as your, as your sky. Uh, so th this is one example. Another one is... Uh, Again, dealing with this integration of the organic uh, into buildings is a project that started with a competition in 2007 that we won in China, where we had bioreactors, re algae growing in the thickness of the curtain wall to produce a biofuel, but also serves as a living machine that scrubs the carb of the CO2. Uh, that also uh, uh, remediates gray water, performs all these amazing functions. I thought that for the longest time, I, whenever I presented this project, I always claimed that I was the, we were the first one to do this, but I think that there were parallel projects. Anyway, the, clearly there is a very important environmental uh, function here driving the project, but there is an aesthetic one, you know, this algae growing on the, on the curtain wall, filtering the, the light. Imagine how it would look, feel inside the building when you see the landscape through the bioreactor. So there's always an aesthetic dimension. But also when this project evolved and in its latest iteration, it was actually transformed and proposed for the Museum of Science uh, in Miami. It became uh, an array of algae tanks which we treated like pixels. So we fed the air through the, the tanks at different rates. That's all computer control. So the more CO2, the, the, the healthier the algae culture, the darker that pixel is. So that whole thing, the array of pixels constituted a, what we call the bio display. It's basically like an, a screen on which we could display any image. Provost called it the slowest developing Polaroid in the world. <laughs> it produces one image per day, and but actually we use it to visualize information about the city. So you, you can see here how a project really dedicated to the environmental impact of buildings has that rhetorical, what I'm calling the rhetorical surplus. It's also a spectacle uh, that actually animates uh, the building in uh, with a with a cultural uh, agenda. Yeah, I mean, I, as I as I listen to you, I, I can also see how it connects to your formative years. You know, as an architectural designer at uh, RISD, and also maybe it distinguishes the role of architects in um, kind of addressing the challenges of climate change, right? So mm -hmm. obviously you're recognizing, you know, the, the, the urgency or the need um, to address the environmental right, impacts, right. but you're trying to distill that through works that are also, uh, can, you know, consider aesthetics and design and experience, right? I mean, certainly having been three or four hours in, a dentist office recently i can imagine like looking up at a ceiling in one of these offices and looking at this kind of hanging garden so it goes just beyond beyond the questions of the environment um so you know there's a lot more that we could talk about um on these topics but we're going to take a quick break um and when we come back i'd like to shift our focus a little bit um, and continue to talk about um, your pervasive interest in aesthetics and cultural projects, but how they're carried over to the large scale project on the city, specifically the question of the smart city. Um, and so please stay tuned and we will return with Rodolfo Corey in just a few minutes.
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope you're enjoying today's episode. Now back to the show with Carrie. Welcome back, and thank you for tuning in to On Cities. I'm here with today's guest, Rodolphe Elcori, Dean of the University of Miami School of Architecture, where we've been speaking to him about his recent projects and initiatives, uh, both uh, within the school and as part of his uh, long trajectory as a, a researcher, practitioner, um, and scholar. So, Rudolph, um, before the break, we began or we touched upon uh, the question of the city, um, because you're also invested in the Smart Cities Initiative, which you lead here at the University of Miami School of Architecture, and which actually you, uh, among other things, organize an annual Smart Cities Conference, which will be held this year in Miami uh, on March 30th and 31st. Um, so I'm I'm curious. Uh, can you simply define what is a smart city? All right. I mean, uh, Carrie, I was hoping that you were going to ask this question because you know, smart city is this uh, buzzword that is now overused and abused. It has it has come to mean everything, so no longer useful. So. Actually, I prepared the definition for you. I look, I even wrote it down. So, I, and I hope this is going to help. So, a smart city utilizes information technology, especially when a city reaches a certain size and complexity, to process data recorded, recorded from all kinds of urban phenomena into usable information information that enable agencies, public and private, and individuals to react differently, meaning more promptly and efficiently. And this is the part I like to stress, to enable different things, new and unprecedented things to take place in the city. So, and let me give some examples to clarify this. At its most basic level, for instance, the smart city can help in the repair of broken light bulbs. You know, in your neighborhood, for instance, maybe there's a light bulb in the municipal system that goes off. Sometimes it takes forever to replace it because nobody knows that it's not working. If the city has this kind of minimal intelligence built into the system, the data will alert the maintenance crew that the bulb is out and uh, someone will come to fix it. Now, that's the most basic, just there's an input and an output. Then let's complicate it a bit and make it more interesting. So what if instead of actually coming to replace these bulbs one by one, the system 
smart system will wait until there is a critical mass of light bulb in this area that need to replace and then more efficiently dispatch one truck to replace them all. So that's a more efficient use of the time, a smarter way to deal with maintenance in the city. Okay, it could be even more interesting. What if there is an AI or an algorithm that based on the, the history of the, the pattern and the databases available on the, those light bulbs and how many, how many times they have been replaced and where, and what circumstances, the system can predict when these light bulbs are going to go off and then accordingly dispatch the truck before they fail to replace all the bulbs that are actually likely to fail. So that's even a smarter system. And that's actually what's going on in certain cities. Now, it can get even more interesting. And this is, I think, where the Rad Lab makes the, the, its contribution is in going even further and I will describe to you a scenario that we have developed for a smart city we're designing in the Yucatan, where actually citizens have a, a user profile where they define, determine preferences in the use of municipal infrastructure. So they can have a preference with regard to public lighting. For instance, they may prefer the public lighting to be super bright when they're walking around or dimmer because they want to protect their anonymity. So the system recognizes them because of the their from their phone basically, and then adjusts so the 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 the, the lighting system responds to individual needs and profiles. So that's even a more sophisticated lighting system that is not actually being repaired more efficiently, but actually providing new possibilities for a customized experience in the city. So. Um, if I understand you correctly, does a smart city require the use of technology? Right. So that that's very important to stress that, yes, in my opinion, it does require uh, technology. Because I, like myself also, I sometimes talk about, you know, traditional city cities and the intelligence sedimented into their forms that have evolved over centuries. But I think that's a, a metaphorical use of the, the term. When we talk about smart cities now, we mean the technological te technological uh, uses uh, uh, in the approach to the city. So, uh, but I, here I should emphasize that when we say technology, it doesn't mean hardware, sensors, you know, infrastructure that is uh, 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 transforming cities in radical way with the intrusion of uh, uh, technology. The data analytics is a kind of technology. So when we used crunch data and used computation to uh, arrive at certain conclusions about the, the data, collected from the city, that's a form of technology. So there's always a technological uh, element. Because a quick example to illustrate this, uh, one of the early successes in smart cities uh, is, is with that uh, unit, part of the mayor's office in New York, that was very savvy as, at uh, analyzing data. So for instance, they made a correlation between uh, receipts for the purchase of bricks and uh, uh, the frequency and probability of fires in a particular building. So when the fire department gets a, a, the emergency call, they can now prioritize. The building who ordered a lot of bricks is less likely to have a fire than the building that never ordered the bricks. We could have never suspected this kind of correlation. It makes sense, you know, the the building that is constantly updated and maintained is more likely to, be, likely to be respecting codes. We couldn't have predicted that, but the data analytics do. They, they create those correlations that help in the management of the city. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating example. And I have to say, in, in preparing for this conversation, you know, I did quite a bit of research on smart cities, but I have to say that um, I think most of the definitions out there are um, quite limited 
in my in my view, and they are incredibly focused on the question of the sensor, you know, deployed in an urban environment. But what if that sensor is deployed in an urban environment that we know is not smart? Like, for instance, you know, suburban sprawl. Can we still call that environment smart? You know, maybe, maybe we need a more holistic understanding of smart that begins, at least, you know, maybe uh, from my perspective, first and foremost, with a smart urban form, which is then, you know, magnified or optimized with technology. I mean, can you say right. something about this? I mean, you're right. I mean, I, mean, I don't know if it makes, if uh, the environment is already very dumb, <laughs> I don't know if the technology is going to save it, but it will make it slightly smarter. And this is where smart cities matter is actually, if the cities were great and self-organizing and smart already, they wouldn't need the, the technology. But I think they do need the technology because they are getting so big and complex that that intelligence built into their form that I was referring to earlier is no longer enough. And the, the, that the technology could help, for instance, you know, suburban subdivisions, etc. For instance, in establishing communities, we know of these apps that are becoming very popular, which I think are part of that smart city paradigm that connect people in the community around uh, shared interests or events. So because the public space in those uh, environments do not allow those encounters, actually the, 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 the app, that layer of technology is actually compensating for what is not already built into the, those uh, environments. Oh, I see. So like what you're saying, for instance, if I live, let's say, in a, a suburban gated community where I, I'm not walking and I don't really know my neighbors... Mm -hmm say I could utilize like this kind of overlay, this smart apps, right? Which I, I think are oftentimes linked to security, but right. this is a way that I can begin to connect with my neighbors, right? And in a way create perhaps a kind of virtual community that then right. later on becomes, you know, an actual encounter in person, I guess, right. right? Exactly. And actually this is a good example to illustrate what you were saying. You are absolutely right about how the emphasis always, always on sensors and other smart infrastructure but it doesn't it's not really about the hardware it's the software it's the the data the data analytics the way the kind of the savvy ways that uh, data scientists could actually uh, gather information and make it relevant in understanding and inhabiting the city yeah i mean i think there's a lot to be talked about and maybe these are some of the topics you'll talk about in the next smart cities conference but i just feel that you know the 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 speeds at which technology moves it's constantly outdated you know as soon as we release one sensor three months later it's outdated and that's not the case with our greatest cities you know great smart urban forms last hopefully millennia you know so i think figuring out a way that we can be more more holistic in our understanding of what it means to be smart, I think could be a win-win. You know, if we merge smart form with smart technologies, I think we end up with a super smart city. And maybe that's what we should be after. But um, may maybe we can return to the original question that maybe led us here. Because, you know, as I listen to your responses, you have such a curious mind. I would say quite open-minded, you know, the way you move from these kind of different areas of interest that we've been talking about. So in your current work on smart cities, um, maybe we can go back to this question. How do how did you arrive here or, or how do you align the problem of solving uh, and as aspects that we associate with smart cities with your interest in, again, aesthetics and these cultural projects that you were discussing mm -hmm. earlier? Maybe even right. like in that case, much smaller scale projects. Right. Um, so, what one frustration I've always had with smart cities is that because of the way I mean this it's the way it's discussed, presented, the way uh, it is understood, it it is always presented as an engineering issue, always a kind of under the hood process, invisible, uh, you know, that has amazing consequences in 
managing and using the cities, but actually that has no manifestation, nothing available to the senses. I go back to my preoccupation with the sense and visibility and visual visualization. So we developed at the lab this concept of the smart city 2.0, which implies, you know, uh, interactivity, implies participation, uh, basically takes what is this hidden process dominated by engineering concerns, takes it out uh, from the that invisible realm and puts it on display and invites participation. For like, like, let me give you a very simple examples. For instance, we worked with the Institute of Data Science and Computing here at the university on developing sensors that were to be deployed in Miami Beach. So these are hidden boxes, nobody sees them. They're collecting very important data. It's all uh, uh, data that's going to, you know, create these huge data set that will have some purpose. But we thought that we should have that function, the data collection and the information that is teased out of the data available well, immediately to the uh, people around the, the devices. So for instance, we designed these boxes. Let's say they are collecting data about the uh, quality of the air. So instead of, of this data disappearing in a database and on somebody's uh, uh, dashboard in the mayor's office, the box itself gives feedback, will tell you if it like it changes colors, for instance, to tell you something about the quality of the, the air. So this is very simple, you know, modification we'll make to the sensor to make it actually deliver that information locally and immediately. So that's one thing that we do, but uh, there are, if we have time, where there are other areas also where we, I think we are making interesting contributions that allows the technology to do things. You remember that you, your how you put it, the, not only things differently, but different things. So for instance, uh, we are interested in, in customizing experience in a public space. That's almost like an oxymoron, right? Because you imagine a public space as the common denominator, the platform that should accommodate everyone and not only, not particular needs. But we think that technology actually can carve uh, uh, in, a, a kind of a, a customized uh, niche <laughs> within that uh, public realm. So let me give you a, an example. Uh, so there was a competition for providing shade in the design district in Miami. It's a high-end retail environment, very fancy stores. They didn't want trees, which would have been the obvious solutions because they obstructed the view to the windows. Now, finally, they gave up and actually planted trees. But uh, at one point, they were considering other options. We presented this uh, crazy project, which is still one of my favorite which actually proposed a fleet of uh, drones, like they shaped like a donut, a flag, like imagine a flying, flying fat donut, a uh, flat donut, inflatables that hovered around and then latched on to visitors and follow them and positioned themselves specifically to shade them, yeah, you know, between the sun and the, the, the the users so they follow you around like a private your private little cloud so in in our mind this was actually a, a kind of project that started to explore the possibility of a almost like a customized weather and not proposed just shading a blanket solution that shades the entire environment but gives you the option of the shade or not because you can dismiss the drone with a hand gesture and it goes away and recharges itself on a pole. But uh, it's it, it, this is a project that says it's in, in, the, in the public realm, it's not one solution fits all. There is a possibility of delivering 
uh, an individual response and uh, catering to an individual preference. In this case, the shade or the the, the personal cloud or the personal weather. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's uh, what you're talking about really is like the personal experience or the customized experience. But maybe uh, when we take a customized project to extremes and we cease to share in a common experience, don't you think we risk alienation or or couldn't the customized experience in a way separate the individual from the collective, which is really the the many times what we love about cities, the ability to congregate in public space and so i mean do you think that that the desire for customization could actually lead to outcomes that are less than desirable that's a great question and actually something that we thought about a lot because when you especially when you speak of a like your the private weather that recalls that famous scene in the truman show like it's like the pivotal moment where the protagonist is walking around and is followed by rain. Like there's only there's rain only where he is standing and nowhere else. But this is that scene it basically captures this idea of how technology is the is the is, is the kind of the agent of perversion and alienation. It's like that this constructed weather is the incap like crystallizes the problem so you have <laughs> you absolutely right to be wary of a custom weather but okay i mean it did make sense in the truman show because it was rain like hor- like following him everywhere but what if actually it's raining everywhere else except on you actually and there's this great installation art installation which was displayed in London a few years ago, and it, it is exactly that. You step into a big room, there's rain everywhere, but wherever you will go, the rain stops. So there's something magical. It's kind of a sense of empowerment, but also connectivity to the other people, with the other people in the room, where you feel like this kind of magical, empowering moment where the, you can bend the rain around you. So this is the hope was the customized experience is that actually maybe it not it doesn't alienate but it actually could bring the people together in a shared experience and so let me go back to the cloud project as an example so yes the cloud is following you around it's shading you uh like a pet you know moving with you but without you knowing it's actually nudging you gently to get closer to other people so because it wants to optimize its shading function by clustering by you know getting to constitute a a ceiling basically getting closer to the other clouds to create a more efficient uh, uh, ceiling shading uh, plane. So actually, it's nudging you to also get closer to the strangers who are walking around and maybe prompt some kind of interaction. So these, this kind of nudging function is something that we are very interested in and have actually we have developed several projects around this, how the technology could work in the background to facilitate, to enable interaction to bring people together rather than separate them in their own private public uh, and uh, in their capsule basically i see i mean it, it gives me a lot to think about actually um because you know the example of the design district i think is a really good one where i think you were trying to solve a, a kind of inherent challenge with the environment which is the lack of shade right so uh, maybe as designers and ur- urban designers, you think, okay, well, how can we address this first and foremost in the physical form of the city, right? You talked about the use of trees, you talk the possibility for for including arcades, you know, which you see all around the tropical world. And then, and then once that's been done, then there's maybe ways to even augment that further with this like, you know, kind of sublime floating, you know, cloud-like form that congregates us in public space you know i think that's maybe perhaps the best of both worlds um 
but you know, we're coming to the end of the, of the episode, but I, I, I wanted to ask you briefly because, um, I read and, and I've actually seen some of the demos for, um, again, some of the smaller scale work that you're advancing at Brad and, uh, your, uh, project entitled Health Hub. Could you briefly, um, tell us about uh, that project? True. Yes. This stems from the work on smart cities and we, Basically, uh, it, uh, it it is a proposition that sees an advantage in actually moving healthcare from the clinic or the hospital, from you know dedicated facilities, to something that could be more ubiquitous and exercised all over cities, the city, and at different scales. Uh, but especially. Uh, at home, we think that the home is the ideal place where for healthcare because you know this is where you can have non-invasive, continuous uh, opportunities for monitoring, measuring, you know, even checking on affective space, uh, states and not only biometrics, but also to uh, uh, be able to measure the environmental conditions to to aid in the diagnosis of uh, some disorders. So, and the the BioHub is basically this project of bringing healthcare, uh, I mean, the Health Hub is the project to bring healthcare at home. It's focused on one appliance. We think the home needs a health appliance. It's the medicine cabinet where that performs as a portal to talk to uh, your doctor is a device that helps you actually uh, manage your drug regimen. It's like a Swiss army knife that takes all kinds of measurements and helps you with your daily uh, routines every morning. So we're fasc- very excited about it. <laughs> it's a fascinating it's- project. I'm going to encourage our listeners to look into it by um, looking at your website. Um, but maybe um, I'm asking all my guests and we have maybe... 30 seconds or a minute to answer this. What is your favorite city, Rodel, and why? My favorite city would have to be the the future smart city that Rad is going to design. It's <laughs> going to incorporate all of these uh, uh, functions that I'm describing uh, because we've been thinking a lot about these things and some of prototypes didn't go, didn't make it into product, but we hope to incorporate them into this amazing city of the future it could be this wonderful thing but also it could be a horrible dystopia (laughs) we're not sure but uh, we are hoping for the best well you found a a unique way to answer that question for sure thank you so much Rodol for all the work that you do as an academic leader and as a practitioner and for our listeners please tune in next week where i will be joined by the award-winning playwright and author vanessa garcia she will be speaking about the role of space and architecture in her world of stories and you won't want to miss it please follow on cities on apple itunes and spotify or your favorite social media platforms and if you enjoyed the conversation please follow us on instagram at the on cities podcast Thanks again, Rodolph, for joining us. And I will see everyone next Friday. Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Cities with Carrie Pennebon. We hope today's episode has given you some insight into how the design of the built environment shapes the quality of our lives. Please join us again next week 